0: I don't know about you guys, I am uh, really excited about 2017, and this is at the top of my list for why. I mean, not just this moment Wednesday at the Brick, but this community that's coming together on our way to becoming a church. So if you're new here, I want to reiterate one more time, you are so welcome here. Uh, We're really committed to creating a community that welcomes every kind of person. You may not even believe any of the things that we hold at the center of our community about God or Jesus or what it means to be human, Really, like, in spite of all of that, we just want you to know that you are welcome here, and we're committed to creating a space for for you, wherever you're coming from, whatever you think about the story that we're telling, whatever you think about the songs that we sing and the prayers that we offer, we want you to know how much you are welcome here. We are on our way to becoming a church. We're somewhere between dreaming about a church and being a church. Like, We're just sort of working our way there little by little. Uh, I want you to know we are working really hard and as quickly as possible on some really good stuff, like... Before long, we will have Sunday mornings together. We're super excited about that. We're going to keep a weeknight on the calendar, though, too, because we know that for a lot of people, a weeknight is actually really good for the flow of your life. So we're looking forward to adding that. We're really looking forward to adding a full-on kids' ministry, at least for Sundays. I know that uh, the Y has been really gracious to us, and we're so grateful that kids can have a safe time over there and run around and blow off some steam and hopefully sleep better tonight. But we're looking forward to full-on kids' ministry. We're looking forward to a permanent home. It's because a lot of things get a lot easier when you have a permanent home. All of that stuff's sort of going on in the background, and we are getting so close to being able to put a bunch of stuff in motion. But I don't want to rush it or blaze past the moment that we're in right now. There's something really important happening right now. Like, like for example, without having a permanent home and Sundays and a lot of other stuff sort of flying around, we get to focus on, on the basics, the simplicity of what a church is and what we're becoming together One of the things that has stood out to me is that um, ownership is really high among this group. I don't know if you felt that or noticed that, but it stands out to me that ownership is really high, which is to say there's just a bunch of us who all feel some responsibility for what this is becoming, and that's really good. Not just me or a few people that are paid to give their best hours of their week to this, but a whole bunch of people seem to take really seriously what are we becoming, uh, a, whole pe- a whole bunch of people seem to feel like it's their job to make sure somebody new feels welcome to you, which is a really big deal. Which is my weekly reminder, if this is not your first time at Southland City Church, you are a greeter, right? Deal? Like, uh, we're going to hang out afterwards. You don't have to stick around, but you're welcome to. We'll open the bar and we'll have food over there and non-alcoholic drinks. And uh, we'd love for you to hang out with us because that's as much church as this. And if you're one of the people who feels like this is home, it's on you and me to make sure somebody else who maybe doesn't have a friend here, who doesn't know if they belong here, that's on all of us, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. I love that about this group. Um, and then there's this simplicity, which is we're spending this season asking a very basic clarifying question, what is a church? Like apart from marketing campaigns and buildings and staffs and all of that other stuff that eventually helps a church be a church, what is a church? And to answer that question, we've been going back again and again to the story of the church in the Bible, the book of Acts, which breaks out this, this initial moment in the, in the people of God who rally around Jesus. And so we're just going to keep that story going. Uh, one more thing though, sorry, before I forget. On um, the whole sort of shared ownership thing, I want to remind you, maybe this is news to you, that we've created a special online space to facilitate all of that shared ownership. And this is really important few months ago, few weeks ago, during that time in the fall, I kept hearing from people who were doing really great things in our community, like Laura who does Sunday brunch with the whole crew because we don't have Sundays right now. So it's like, let's get brunch on Sunday for whoever wants to. Or I got an email from somebody who wanted to do a woman's Bible study and they were wondering like, is that okay? And I was like, yes. Like, you know, but, but I get it cuz sometimes church experience teaches you that the guy in the front's supposed to approve of everything and I hate that, but like So we get all these questions coming in, people raising their hand, like lots of good stuff going on. And as a leadership team, we're looking at all of it saying, that's amazing. Like do that, that's so good. And we want a way for other people in this constellation of community to know what's going on, right? But if we took time up here to talk about everything going on every week, it would take the whole time and that wouldn't be very good. So we created uh, the South Bend City Church Collective, which is different from the South Bend City Church Facebook page. It's the South Bend City Church Collective Facebook page, and that's a space where anybody in this group who's doing something and wants to invite others into it could raise their hand on that, on that spot. This is just like whatever you're doing that's in the spirit of this church in any way, right? Maybe you're doing something to love the city Maybe you're showing up to serve. Maybe you're just going out to great restaurants every Thursday night and trying different spots in South Bend. Whatever it is, if you're a part of it and it's in the spirit of this church and you want to invite others from this community into it, the South Bend City Church Collective on Facebook is the place to do that. And I want to, like, not just say if you're doing that, you can use the page. I want to encourage you, do that. Like, sometimes I hear from, having worked in the church for a long time, I hear from people and they're like, why does everything have to go through the staff? And I'm starting to learn how that develops. I think part of it is because every once in a while somebody's crazy, and you got to deal with that, right? But often I think it's more that, like, we got to have this dysfunctional relationship. And I, even the structure of this room, the reason we have uh, seating in the round is we don't want it to be quite as much like the man or the woman up front who's got all the power and does all the things. We're trying to say this is a communal experience. This is a communal work. And so I want to say, like, If a year from now, if two years from now, if five years from now we want a church where it really is a shared community, a shared ownership, something we're creating together, then like jump on that, man, right? Like maybe ask yourself this week, what could you do um, to live out the things we are praying through and teaching through in simple ways in the city? Plan on it. Hop on the Facebook Collective. Tell us about it. Invite other people into it. And maybe a couple others will join you. You'll make some friends along the way. And this community will grow richer and stronger as more people own it. And that's just one little tool. Uh, the disclaimer is we don't know if this will work at all. Like, if it gets taken over by like, political discussions, which is against the rules of the collective, we, I don't know. We may just have to shut it down and try something new. We'll see. But it's there for now. Let's try it together and give it a good test. Facebook, South Bend City Church Collective. Cool. All right, let's get into it, guys. Uh, Before Christmas, Ryan took us into the story in the book of Acts where they have this problem and they appoint these leaders, these deacons, to deal with it to make sure that everybody who has need among the widows gets what they need, right? Well, we're going to sort of pick up that story in Acts chapter 6, and you've got a little insert there. One of the guys they pick is Stephen. So he's a, he's a Greek or a Hellenistic Jew there, a leader they've raised up. He's helping the church move forward. And this is a bit of Stephen's story in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Don't, don't worry about that detail. It doesn't matter a whole lot for us here. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Let's, uh, let's unpack some of that there. Now, the first thing that's interesting is the writer of Acts just keeps driving the same thing home, which is this. The church is the continuation, the expansion of Jesus. And here's how we see it here. This is literally written, if you go really granular on it, you can see how the writer is writing this in a way to help us see that Stephen's going through the exact same thing that Jesus went through. Stephen's being persecuted in the exact same way that Jesus was persecuted. He's facing the exact same resistance that Jesus was facing in granular detail, which just reiterates the fact that the church is Jesus moving out into the world, right? There's all these really tight alignments between what Stephen is facing and what Jesus faces. For example, both of them are said to have a wisdom that their opponents can't refute. Both of them are dragged into a trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Both of them are accused by false witnesses, their accusers get some people to lie about them. Both of them are charged with blasphemy against God and Moses and with threatening the temple. So that's a pretty tight list, right? I mean, he's going out of his way to say the same things that Jesus was doing, the church is doing, and the same kind of resistance that Jesus ran into, the church is running into. Now I want to call this out because it's really important. If we're gonna talk about how this book describes what you and I are into as followers of Jesus and as a church. I follow a a lot of Christian leaders on Twitter and people who have really prominent voices, and there is one thing that happens again and again, and it drives me crazy, and it's this. I'll see it from really smart people who have more degrees than me, and I don't understand it. Like, they'll say something like this. They'll say, Christians aren't people who are like Jesus. Christians are people who need Jesus. Or they'll say something like this. Jesus didn't come to teach. Jesus came to die. I'd like to take you through the leaders with best-selling books that say this kind of stuff on Twitter, and I just want to call this out for a second. It drives me bonkers. First of all, I want to ask, like, do you think the world is suffering from too many people who are like Jesus? Like, is that a problem in the church, that too many Christians take Jesus too seriously? What are you coming against here, you know? And also, maybe what they're concerned about is protecting the church from the charge of hypocrisy, because we're not perfect, Right? And if people expect Christians to be perfectly like Jesus, they're going to be let down. Maybe they're trying to watch out for that. But what really drives me crazy is it's like they're dividing something that's united in Scripture. See, I think they're trying to say, right, it's about grace. It's not about performance. Amen, right? I think they're trying to say we can't save ourselves. Amen, right? But why would you take the next step and just like throw away the part where we live into this way? I mean, all throughout scripture, from the beginning to end, everywhere you see God doing work in people's lives, there's this dynamic relationship, this connection, this flow between grace breaking in and a life lived out over and over. It's like with the Israelites, grace breaks in. God hears their cry and he says, I'm gonna rescue you. And then the very next thing he does and says, oh, and in this rescue, let me show you a better way of being human in the world. Let me show you what it looks like to live in union with me in the world. Again and again, like these things are like a, a dance grace breaking in gift breaking in god's kindness breaking in and creating possibilities for a way of living that were never there before that grace broke in and like there's an energy to that right like a flow to that and it drives me crazy that so many voices seem intent on breaking that apart i'm not here to like argue with them but i'm here to say this community understands this story to say that those two things the grace that breaks in that we didn't deserve the grace that rescues us and learning to live like Jesus, learning to walk in the path of Jesus, we think those are deeply connected and both of them are a gift, right? Like, have you, have you ever been like, I don't know, maybe you're doing like home repair or car repair or some task that's really important but really hard for you? For me, home repair and car repair would be both of those. Like, really important and very hard for me. Have you ever been doing something like that and you just can't get it right? And then some expert, maybe... Maybe your dad or your grandpa or somebody shows up and they're there to help you with it. And they say, hey, let me show you how to do that. And the first thing they do is they do it for you for a bit, right? Because that's how you learn. I mean, they just straight up do for you what you cannot do. But that's not the end of the gift, right? Because after they do for you what you cannot do for you, they start equipping you, start putting it in your hands, start giving you the tools, and pretty soon the real gift is you can then live into that yourself. That's the hope of this, that's the good news. And this community believes very strongly that it's all together in the gospel, okay? Good? All right, enough of that soapbox. Let's keep working here. Um, so we see uh, that the Jesus thing is going on in Stephen, in the church, in a really important way. It says that he performed great and miraculous signs. Now, sometimes when I read the Bible, I see things like that, and it just sounds like charismatic fireworks. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like magic tricks in the temple grounds to, like, impress people or get your attention. Like, some spiritual pyro just to like say, hey, look at this, you know? I don't think that's a fair reading though because if we look closely, we should assume that these great and miraculous signs, it it just makes sense to assume that they're like all the other great and miraculous signs in scripture, right? Like we should assume some continuity because Luke's a decent writer and it's in the scriptures. And like, we should assume there's some connection there. So for example, we should assume that Stephen's great and miraculous signs are like Jesus's great and miraculous signs and they're like the apostles' great and miraculous signs which means, for example, they have a prophetic kind of energy, like they are healings and feedings that are, are meant to do something in particular, meant to break a lie, meant to install a truth, meant to heal a broken understanding of God, or meant to announce the availability of God's kingdom. That's, that's what's always going on in the signs, and if we had all night, we could just do a survey and see that again and again, but there's something else that you see again and again when a great and miraculous sign happens, when a healing happens, when a miracle happens, again and again, the person who does the great and miraculous and powerful thing, the first thing they do is they see in a very special way. Again and again, with Jesus and the apostles, when a great sign, when a healing happens, when a sign of power happens, there's a scene that happens first. There's a moment when Jesus is in a synagogue and he's teaching on their holy day. And there's a woman there who has been bent over, crippled by an evil spirit, it says for like 18 years, her body has been bent over, she can't even stand up straight. And in, in very particularly in the scripture, Jesus sees her in her crippled state, and then he releases her from the demon and he heals her. There's another moment where Jesus is at uh, the, sheep, the sheep gate at the pool there, and there's a man who's been uh, an invalid for, for like decades. And what we read first is that Jesus sees the man, which is probably different from all the other people who walked by this beggar on the side of the road who kept their eyes from making contact because it's inconvenient to deal with that, right? Or the apostles, Peter and John, we looked at this in Acts chapter 3. They're on their way, and there's a man there who's asking, who's begging. He just wants a little bit of money. He's crippled too. And it says very particularly in Acts 3 that John and Peter, they look straight at him. There's like a, there's like a scene that goes on I think it makes sense to assume that if that's a part of this process usually, then it's a part of what was going on with Stephen. We're going to keep working on this, so hang with me for a minute, okay? Uh, a little while ago I was in Lebanon with a group called World Vision, and we were there to see what was going on with Syrian refugees. And it's a small group of us, it was just like six of us, we had a really tight kind of experience there, and we go over there to just tour the refugee camps in the Bekaa Valley, which is right next to Syria, and then we go into some of the cities where there are refugees living in the cities there. And I'll be really honest with you guys, at the beginning of the trip, I felt really disconnected. It it was kind of bizarre to me. Uh, Maybe I was a little tired. We were only there for like three and a half days on the ground, which is a lot of jet lag to deal with from here to Lebanon and back in three and a half days. And like the first day of the briefing, this is true, we're in the briefing, they do a little security briefing and they show us the map of where we're gonna be. And the guy says, now some people are worried about ISIS over here. He says, don't worry, they're like 10 miles from where you're gonna be. (laughs) I know, right? Also, I'm really glad mom's laughing at that, because I don't know if she'd be okay with that one. Um, so anyway, I, I'm a little jarred by that. I'm kind of taking all this in, right? And I'm struck by like, the political realities of it, but I'm failing to connect with the people. And every day we're in refugee camps. These are in Lebanon. Lebanon, by the way, is a country of 4 million people in Lebanon. And since the Syrian crisis has happened, 2 million Syri- Syrians have entered Lebanon. So 4 million, now up to 6 million. That would be like, what, like 160 million people coming into the United States on top of the ones that we already have? I mean, just another 50%, right? There's power brownouts throughout the country. And, and all along the Bekaa Valley, there are these refugee settlements. Now, the Bekaa Valley, this is like... They kind of joke, but they're kind of real. It's like the Napa Valley of Lebanon. A lot of good wine comes from that region. It's very beautiful and scenic. And there's mountains there. And right on the other side of those mountains is places like Damascus and Syria where the fighting is really, really bad. And so all of these refugees, millions of them, have come over those mountains, and the Bacah Valley is their first landing place, and Lebanon has taken them in. we would walk through camp after camp. I mean, these are just in the fields there. They start using 2 by 4s and tarps, and they start building little tented settlements there, they call them. They go on and on and on through the fields. And pretty soon it like, gets monotonous. It's like, how many Syrian refugee camps can you see? They kind of seem all the same. And I'm just feeling really disconnected. Like, I see the suffering, but it almost felt like I was like, in a virtual reality or like, 3D experience where my, my eyes were seeing it, but it wasn't, it wasn't connecting for me, if I'm being really honest. And then little by little, things started to change for me. Part of it was, I think, that we spent so much time praying with them. And so many would welcome us into their homes and we'd sit and we'd hear their story for a minute. And then they would, these these Syrian Muslim families who were very gracious to us, they would let us pray for them in the name of Jesus and just let them know as followers of Jesus why we were there to listen to their story and understand their needs. And some of it I think was was the team I was with, like my roommate, uh, a good buddy from Nashville named Matt, who's a pastor down there, we were hotel buddies for three or four days and just, Debriefing the experiences with somebody else who was trying to see with real eyes what was going on really helped me because there was a moment I'll never forget we're walking through one of the camps on the third day and It's just more and more of the same. I mean, it's just little tent after little tent with family inside again and again and there's the the UN water trucks and there's World Vision relief stations and I'm walking by and all of a sudden I notice the, a family with their tent there. They had taken what was basically rebar. I think from a, a dumpster or a junkyard. They'd taken rebar. You know that metal stuff that's kind of like a wire or a rod that goes through concrete to keep it safe. They'd taken rebar and they created like a, a fenced-in uh, little garden in the front of their in the front of their home. Like they built a little front porch at the front of their tent. And something about that just knocked me out. Like I'd seen a bunch of need all of that time, but that was the first chance that I had to really notice their dignity. And it was like finally in that moment I started seeing in them the same things I have in myself, which is like a desire to have a real life, like a desire to protect the people I love. Something about that, something about somebody like dragging their family over mountains into a valley, building a tent with wood beams and tarps and desperately hoping for water, but taking the time to build a courtyard garden at the front of their home to preserve some sense of normalcy for their family. Something about that aspiration to have a home, to have a comfortable place to be, to have dignity, something about that connected with that place inside me where all of those same things reside, right? It was only after that that I felt like I was actually seeing these refugees for who they really were. It was only after that that I felt like I was actually tapping into a place inside where I might, in good faith, do something for them. Like, maybe I would give some money, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of, like, compulsion. Like, I want to help. The part in me that has that same aspiration is connected to the part in them. Like, maybe the part in me that's made in God's image is connected to the part in them where that resides. And it just, it finally drew me out when I finally saw that. I think that's something that's going on in the scriptures when the language is so focused on seeing. Like, do you really see? Do we see the people? Do we see our neighbors? Do we see our coworkers, our friends? Do we see our city with eyes that connect with that deep place within where the image of God resides, that deep place where our brokenness is held, that deep place where all of our dreaming still happens? That kind of seeing always precedes the kind of miracles and signs that happen in scripture. And I think it makes a lot of sense to assume that that's the kind of thing that was going on with Stephen. Now, um, he goes on to this killer sermon. He preaches, it's the longest sermon of the book of Acts, and I'm going to read all of it to you now. No, I'm just kidding, guys. Relax, okay? He goes on for verses and verses and verses. He has a chance to kind of address these accusations that come against him. It's interesting. He goes through the whole story of Israel. I mean, he goes—he does like the greatest hits of every chapter of their text. And in none of it does he really address their questions, which is interesting, by the way. Like, kind of like a politician, you know what I mean? Like, kind of a filibuster. But he seems to say, "Look, your questions don't matter right now. But I've got a story to tell about what God is doing in the world." It's interesting. He talks a lot about Moses and the Exodus. I was reading this week, uh, there's a, a modern Jewish rabbi who interacts with an ancient Jewish rabbi, and the ancient Jewish rabbi is named Rashi, and they do commentary on that story of Moses and the Israelites in the Exodus. And there's all of this scene in that story that I hadn't really thought about before that the rabbis call out. Like, for example, they talk about Moses who sees the burning bush, which is part of the story that Stephen tells. And you know, the thing about the burning bush is that Stephen sees the bush, but he realizes, though it's burning, it's not burning up, Right? Now let me ask you, how long do you have to look at something that's burning to know that it's burning but not burning up? You couldn't quickly look at a fire or a torch or a bush or anything else that's burning and realize it's not burning up unless you give your attention to it for a moment, right? There's There's a story that the rabbis make up in the Midrash, which is a commentary on the story of the Exodus, and it says that, While the Israelites are walking through the Red Sea, remember God does this massive miracle and the waters are held back and they walk through on the ground and Pharaoh's armies are chasing after them, but Pharaoh's armies get swallowed up and it's like the greatest miracle of the whole Testament. It's the really epic stuff, right? And the Midrash from the rabbi, they say that these two guys, they actually have names for them, Reuben and Shimon, I think it is. Reuben and Shimon, they're walking through and it says that they're not looking up at the water or anything else. They're just looking at the mud that they're walking and they're complaining and they're saying, this is gross. I'm getting mud in my sandals. It's just like the slime pits in Egypt. Mud here, mud everywhere. What's the difference? And the commentary goes on to say they completely failed to look up. They never noticed the walls of water on either side and they did not understand the songs of praise that were being sung by their countrymen on the far distant shore as they made it through the waters. They never looked up. There's all these themes of seeing and not seeing, of keeping your eyes open, of not having your eyes open, of looking closely enough, paying attention enough to really connect to the reality that's right in front of your eyes that so many of us miss. Uh, Toward the end of his story, he talks about, um, well, let me just read. This is toward the end of his speech. This is in Acts chapter seven, verse 48. It should be the next portion that you have on your page there. However, the most high, that's God, does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now he's getting fiery. Watch out. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And he's talking about Jesus there, of course. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. He, uh, he's kind of making a case here that God's not in the containers that you think he's in, right? God's not confined to heaven, but in fact God fills the earth. And God's not confined to the temple, but in fact is breaking out into our everyday lives, which of course is what the followers of Jesus were discovering again and again through Christ, that God was breaking in. This is why, by the way, for us, this is why focusing on Jesus, one of, one of the many reasons that focusing on Jesus is so important for us. See, we believe the things the Bible tells us about the world that we live in today, like that the world is filled with the glory of God, that the entire universe, the created order, is held together by God, dwells within God. We believe the things the Bible says about this world, and we believe especially the things the Bible says about Jesus, teaching us that there in Christ, in a particular and unique way, The world and God are being brought together, held together. That uh, that fully human and fully God, the world is being brought back together with God, right? That on a cross, he's reconciling all things to God, not just just, um, people, all things that the universe's division from God is being healed somehow in Christ. We believe those things, and so if we're going to have eyes to see The way that God emerges in this world, the way that God is working in this world, the way that God is showing up in this world, if that's part of what a church is, well then we focus on Jesus because that's the epicenter of that activity. That's the most concentrated place we find it, that God and the world are coming together again. That all the ways that God is making us to know him are happening there. That all the ways that God is making us to see with spiritual eyes are like fully on display in Jesus. Now uh, Stephen gets in trouble. Which is what happens when you talk like that to people. So verse uh, 54. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, listen, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen, in the scriptures, uh, there's a word for Stephen and people who experience what Stephen experienced. The word is martyr. Martyr is a word that we use for people who die for the faith, right? Persecution comes against them, suffering comes at them, and out of their faithfulness to Christ, their life is taken. The word martyr in Greek is also where we get the word witness. In fact, usually in the Greek, the word martyr is translated witness, like earlier when we heard, you will be my witnesses, to the ends of the earth and we talked about this before but I just want to press in a little further in it because we're asking what is a church and one of the things a church is is a witness one of the things you and I are being called to together is to witness now maybe you've been witnessed to it, I'm just curious has anybody ever been witnessed to like a cold call door like a tract anything you have there's a the Christians are getting out there all right so I don't know how that experience was for you and I know I know nothing about their motivation right but I know that often the way that Christians try to apply this word, on the receiving end, it stinks. So I'm not trying to impugn their motives. Maybe they get knocked on your door out of a great love and commitment. But on the receiving end, maybe you felt like a project. Maybe you felt like they were trying to fix you. Maybe you're like, you don't even know me, right? <laughs> you know? I like it when I get with this too, because I'm a pastor, you know? And sometimes I like to see how long I can keep it going. Just kind of play along with it for a bit. <laughs> Sorry. Um... So witness is a word that has lots of baggage for us, and I get that. But I'm trying to make a case for something very simple here. One of the things the church is, is a witness. And a witness, first and foremost, is somebody who has learned how to see. That's where I want to start with this word. A witness is somebody who has learned how to see. I think of Stephen here. I mean... That's what happens at the end, right? His vision is intensified. He sees the glory of God, like, fully on display. He sees Christ. He sees heaven opened up. And it seems to be so compelling and so promising and so reliable to him that he dies in a kind of peacefulness here, right? Some of the last words on his lips, like, forgive them as they come at me. Forgive them. And then the scripture says he fell asleep, which is a a way of reminding us of the peace that somebody dies in in this story when they're united to Christ. simply fell asleep. Asleep, a martyr, a witness, first and foremost, is somebody who's learned how to see. I think about, like, if, if you walked into a movie theater, picture this for a second. Let's say you walked into a movie theater, but let's say there was a side entrance where you could see the faces of the people in attendance, but you couldn't see the movie they were watching. You're, kind of, you're coming into the room, and because of the way the hallway works or whatever, their faces are illuminated a bit by the screen, right? but you can't actually see anything that's on the screen. And if you stood in that hallway for the duration of the movie, you could probably, even if you couldn't hear anything, you could probably figure out, is this a comedy they're watching? Are they laughing? Is it a tragedy? Are they crying? Like you could get some sense of the character of what they are seeing just by the look on their faces, right? And I picture that with Steven. When I watch him, like when I think of martyrs, that's not comforting to me. I don't want to die for my faith. I don't want to be stoned or tortured. I don't want any of those things. I don't think I've actually seen anywhere near the fullness of what Stephen has seen here, right? But I've seen a glimpse. And I look at Stephen and his face and I think, what, what had he seen? How had he learned so perfectly to see that though they come at him with stones, though they, they, I can you imagine dying with stones coming at you. Like it's nothing and he dies peacefully forgiving them knowing that there's something better that he has seen. I want to see like that. Don't you want to see that? If there is a reality available to us, if Jesus is saying you can have this picture in front of your eyes, you can have the curtains parted, you can come all the way into the room and see what's on the screen, don't you want that? I want that. I want that for how it will transform my understanding of God. I want it for how it will help me see the world around me. I want it for how it will help me see myself and the ones I love. Uh, I want to be able to see the way that Stephen sees. A witness is somebody who's learned how to see, and a church is called to be a witness. Now there's moments, I think, where the curtains get ripped open. We call that like epiphany or revelation. Also a weird word that gets kind of taken over, the word apocalypse basically means like a curtain is being opened so you can see what's real, what was concealed. So there's moments where like the curtain gets ripped open, the heavens are ripped open, and there's other moments of practice, right, where you just sort of try to live more and more in what you saw in that moment. I know for me, uh, a moment of epiphany had a lot to do with this church. See, I had uh, the conviction for now like seven years that at some point in my life, I was going to be part of a new church in a city somewhere. And I, I mean, it kind of broke into my life, and I was also pretty excited about it. And so I started trying to see, like, I started looking for where that's going to happen. So for like five years, every city I go to, I'm like, I'm actively looking. I mean, I'm walking the streets. I'm praying on the sidewalks. I'm trying to feel the vibe of the city, figure out how good the craft beer is. And I <laughs> wish that was a joke. Um, <laughs> I'm visiting church plants in all these cities. I would, I would just, like, knock on the door on a Tuesday of an office of a church plant and just... Tell them, hey, I think one of these days I'm going to be part of something like this. Can I ask you what it's like? I did this in Boston, Chicago, Nashville. I used to go to Europe a lot. I did it in London, Paris. I did it all over the place. I kept trying to see, where is this supposed to happen? And then, a little over a year ago, November of 2015, I realized the time is is now. There's just a whole bunch of reasons I realized the time is now, but I still wasn't entirely sure where. And I thought it was Nashville for about 36 hours, and it just, things kind of lined up. It just kind of made sense. Like there was a job there and a church there and good craft beer there and had friends there. And so like, I thought that was it. And guys, if I'm being honest, it's like after 36 hours, it's like a curtain just parted. And I felt like I saw South Bend in a way that I hadn't. Kind of, kind of like that, kind of in a moment, like a a curtain parting, like an epiphany, like a revelation, like an apocalypse, like just a revelatory moment where I'm like, Kind of like, how would I not see my own city through quite this lens before, you know? And you'll have moments of epiphany. You'll, you'll be struggling with your spouse for weeks on end, and you just, you're just really frustrated. And then something may happen to just connect you with a deeper part of that person and why it is you're struggling against them, and you'll have an empathy for them that you didn't have before where you'll be dealing with a situation in your life where God is nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. You've just been begging some light to break in, just anxious for God to show up somehow, and it hasn't happened. And then in a moment, there might be an epiphany, kind of a breaking open. The curtain will part. That happens sometimes. I don't know why it happens when it happens. I don't understand all the factors or what's going on with that. I just know that sometimes there's an epiphany a curtain parting, a revelatory moment, right? But I know that life is much more than the epiphanies. It's much more than the revelatory moments. It's practice. A lot, of, a lot of preaching gets exciting when we talk about the epiphanies. I know that. It's fun to just talk about the mountaintops, the curtain parting moments. But we also believe as a community, we need lots of practice. Just to live in the rhythm of these things every day. It's like with South Bend. Like, I have that moment. And so I realized that's it. So, like, a week later, I, I talked to the church I was at at Granger, and they were amazing about it. And we start going for it. And there's moments when I'm like, wait, should I have thought about that more? Uh, too late, you know? And, um, and we kind of go for it. And there's moments when be, I'll be really honest with you guys. Like, it felt like the curtains closed again. Like, I'd be walking through South Bend, and I'd walk what felt like the six city blocks that can... Struck the entire downtown, and I'd be like, Wait, is that it? Like, you know, like I I would have moments like that. I'd be like, One moment, it's like I'd be driving downtown, and it's like, Man, I just see all the potential, all of the flourishing that's gonna happen. Other moments, I'm like, Ah, where'd it go, you know? Just to be really honest, like the epiphany moments aren't every moment, and I know that I have to practice. It's like last summer, I took to what I kind of took as a secret practice. I thought about inviting everybody to it, but I kind of felt like to have integrity with it, I just needed to do it quietly for a season. And I would go to the parking garage across the street from Findlay's Hearth downtown and just kind of stand up there at sunset and kind of look in every direction and just try to pray for the city. And so I'd look out to the west, and I don't know many of the people who live out there, but I'd just imagine you'd see some of the old factories out there, you'd see some of the old churches out there, and I would just try to kind of imagine and pray. And I'd look south, and I'd look east, and I'd look north, and I'd see Notre Dame, and I'd see the East Race, and I'd look all the way over to River Park where I live, and... And this wasn't like epiphany, this, I didn't have any like, my hair didn't get set on fire or anything like that, you know what I mean? But there's that practice, you know? Last week uh, with a couple of buddies who were in town, I reached out to Jacob Titus, who's a friend of our church and he's the photographer that provided the really beautiful photography when we uh, did our, our listening night uh, months ago. And I said, hey, could we like, Jacob's like a great city explorer, he knows South Bend and he takes really cool pictures too. And so he took us to one of, one of the many old, abandoned factories in South Bend. And we just kind of walked around and, and kind of felt the history there. Anybody ever heard of a South Bend stove or oven range? Anybody ever seen those? Like, they're, they're in commercial kitchens. Uh, little known fact, Temper Grill has one. I've seen it. It's, if you look for old ovens, they say South Bend on them. They used to make them all right there. And then the company got bought and moved somewhere else, and they still make them to this day, and they still say South Bend. But long, long ago, they left our town in that factory. We were walking around in that factory, and I know that South Bend has a lot of manufacturing history and a lot of pain and a lot of economic struggle that is attached to the way that that history broke down, you know? But I didn't grow up in a manufacturing family. Like, like in generations, there wasn't like manufacturing income sustaining our family, and I didn't do any manufacturing work in my life. And so I had probably a hard time connecting with that narrative that's so important to so many people in our country right now. Like, that was a narrative that played in huge in the political season that we just came from. And I'll be honest, I didn't really have a lot of empathy for it. And it was while we were standing in this rundown factory, which is one of so many empty, abandoned factories, and we were talking and Jacob pointed out that another friend of his, who was also having a hard time understanding the political season that we just walked through, he said the friend of his stood there in that abandoned factory and said, you know what, I think maybe I get it. So many neighborhoods and so many employees and so many people around our country have struggled with that. This is the practice, is what I'm saying. It's going and intentionally looking. It's praying. It's listening. It's investing yourself in trying to see. We want to be a community that has plenty of space for epiphany, right? Like, we want the lights to just come on. But we also want to practice even when the epiphanies don't come. So our last uh, thing tonight is simply this. Um, Dan and maybe the whole band I think are gonna come back up but before we sing together again uh, in your program for the night on the scripture page if you flip it over you'll see there's just a a couple of prompt questions there and a bit of a blank space. And just to simply begin by naming there may be places in your life in the world around you where it's hard to see God. Or maybe there are places in your life or the world around you where it's hard to see things the way God sees things. We wanna call that out. Uh, if you're a person for whom the word God doesn't really work, totally get that. Um, you could—I I don't know what works for you. Where you have a hard time seeing the transcendent, where you have a hard time seeing hope, where you have a hard time seeing the deeper reality of the way things really are. Maybe that would work for you. Uh, at the center of our community, though, is this belief that there is a God, and that He's inviting us through Christ to learn how to see a world being put back together, to see the broken places with great empathy and compassion to see the aspirational places in the world with great um, identity, like we identify with that. Great solidarity, whether it's a Syrian refugee or it's your next door neighbor or coworker, your spouse. And we simply wanna name and and let this sort of provoke us into an adventure over the next few weeks of seeing differently through epiphany and practice and prayer. So uh, let's do this, a couple minutes of silence with just a little bit of music in the background. And uh, if you want to close your eyes, that's great. If you want to write, if that's helpful for you, it may be a very brave thing to simply say, I have a hard time seeing God in myself. Or I have a hard time seeing God in the city or in my workplace. Or I have a hard time seeing this issue or this kind of person or this political label through the eyes that God has for them. And then uh, after a couple minutes of that, Dan will lead us in one more song. I know that I badly want to see what Stephen saw uh, because it must have been so good and beautiful and profound that he simply felt like he fell asleep and uttered a profound word of grace to his fiercest enemies along the way. That's what I want to see. I want to see what he saw. I want to see the way that he saw. So we'll practice together as a community. This is part of becoming a church together, right? Uh, A church that witnesses not with angry arguments against those who don't believe what we believe, but with the eyes of compassion that know how to look out upon the world, right? Um, hey, we are every Wednesday the next two months. We're so pumped about that. We got this room and the Y for Kids every Wednesday this month and next. If you've got friends who you know are anxious for a home like this, like a maybe they don't have a community to belong to, maybe they don't have friends to walk their journey with, um, Maybe that consistency makes it easier for you to invite them to be a part of it. And then there's more adventure right around the corner after that for our community. Tonight, please hang out. Uh, The bar will open, there'll be food over there. If you don't know someone, be brave, let us know, and we would love to get to know you and invite you more deeply into this community. And we have a way of ending our gatherings. It's an old-fashioned word called benediction, but if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And I just wanna look at you as I offer you this uh, good word may you learn how to really see. May you look at your neighbor, the stranger, the coworker, the family member, the friend. And if you don't identify with their need, may you identify with that shared hope, that aspiration, the longing within them that is not that different from the longing within you to know that you are loved and being made whole by the God of the universe who has come to bring heaven and earth back together through his son, Jesus Christ. May we learn how to see and as we learn how to see, May we align our lives with that vision. And may we offer the most generous and gracious invitation to others to come and see what we have seen in Jesus together. Grace and peace be with you, friends.